You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Before we begin, let me say two things. The first is, I need your help. And here's how you can help me, okay? Uh, If you're encouraged at any point in the sermon, if you would, just shout out amen. If you're encouraged at any point in the sermon, just shout amen. I will not be offended or distracted. Okay, can we just practice this real quick? I'm going to say something that Christians have always believed, and you guys are going to shout out amen. And here we go. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Amen. Amen. He's coming again to judge both the living and the dead. Amen. 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 That's the first thing. The second is a question, and here it is. Aren't the Psalms such a gift? Amen. Aren't the Psalms such a gift? Here's something to ask someone over lunch today. If you could have only three books of the Bible for the rest of your life, which three would you choose? If you could have only three books of the Bible for the rest of your life, which three would you choose? I might share my, uh, my full answer on y'all's podcast uh, that Ty and I are going to record later today. But one of my answers, one of my books is definitely the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, as one theologian said, reflect the anatomy of the soul. A pastor I look up to named Ray Ortland says the Psalms are real help for real people. Uh, People who are waiting. People who are struggling. People who want to be blessed. Oh, the Psalms. Beloved, which Old Testament book is quoted more in the New Testament than any other? The Psalms. Which Old Testament book did Jesus quote when he was being crucified? The Psalms. A sister came up to me after the last service uh, and and shared this Athanasius quote with me about the Psalms. You've got to love members just sharing Athanasius quotes. Uh, And she said, Athanasius said that whereas the rest of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. Friends, the Psalms were the hymnal of God's people. Y'all heard a a song last week in Psalm 18. May God put a new song in our mouths and hearts today. Let's pray and dive in. Oh Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? Is a question we often ask. We ask it at the popular level, Uh, We follow people on Twitter and Instagram, or if you're really cool, you're on threads. And we ask this in part so we can see who people are. And we ask it at the individual level. In good times, we might meet an intriguing person and think, hmm, who are you? In bad times, someone, maybe a child talking back to us, offends us, and we think, who are you? To say such and such to me, who are you? We naturally ask as we evaluate 
others. But today, God's word evaluates us. Friends, today, let's take that question, who are you, and turn it around right back to ourselves. Ask yourself, who am I? You might think the question is silly or weirdly introspective, but God doesn't. No, he wants each of us to read our text today and ask, who am I? Jenna read Psalm 1 for us earlier. And Psalm 1 almost sounds like a parable or proverb, doesn't it? We're not sure who wrote this first psalm and when, but it serves as the gateway to the book of Psalms. It establishes the theme of the entire Psalter. That's what the book of Psalms is called. And the theme Psalm 1 speaks of is instruction for holiness and happiness. The psalm speaks of the way of the righteous, the blessed, who love God, and because they love God, they love his word, and so they submit to it. Unlike the wicked, they obey it. That's a summary, a 30,000-foot view of the psalm. But as we dive into the psalm, we see it breaks nicely into two sections, verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 through 6. If you're taking notes, our outline will follow this breakdown. So we'll look at that first section first, verses 1 to 3. And then the second section, verses four to six. We'll ask ourselves a question for each of these sections, and these secondary questions will help us answer our larger question, who am I? Okay, so the question for verses one to three to ask yourself is this. Am I blessed? Question or point number one, am I blessed? In verse 1, we meet this man or woman. That, man, that word man represents a godly person regardless of gender. And this person is blessed. Uh, by blessed, the psalmist doesn't necessarily mean a person who has nice things. No, he means a person who is truly happy. And not just happy in the way we often use the word, referring to an emotion that comes and goes. No, the psalmist means happy in the sense that this man has a sturdy satisfaction and growing pleasure in God. Regardless of his circumstances, the blessed person is in a state of well-being because he knows God's favor. A friend, can you imagine your happiness not being controlled by your circumstances. After all, how was it that someone like the Apostle Paul could be in jail and write such a happy book like Philippians? Such blessedness, such happiness is available to those who know God's favor. How does one who knows such favor act? He acts rightly righteously. Uh, He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Those words, counsel of the wicked and sinners and scoffers, are all meant to describe the unrighteous. Friends, for God, there is a clear difference and a great difference between the wrong way to live and the right way. But is living righteously as simple as doing good things? Is it as simple as ignoring people we think are wicked? You know, we don't talk to them or ever stand with them. Some of your elders and I ate at Macero last night. If our waiter wasn't a Christian and offered us advice on what to eat or what to order, should I have said, sorry, 
I'm righteous. I can't listen to the counsel of the wicked. (laughs) Well, no, I didn't say that because all people are made in God's image. And so we're called to love others, to respect them and do good to them. God's people are those who are called to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. So in verse one, the, the psalmist is saying the blessed man is the person who is not fundamentally characterized by evil actions and wicked company. Uh, he's not saying the blessed man is perfect. No, we, we all sin. And let me just give you this encouragement. Holiness is not marked by the absence of sin so much as it's marked by the hatred of sin. This is something I said to my church recently. A lot of you are fighting sin, but you're discouraged because you've not yet gotten rid of that sin in your life. I get that, but the fact that you want to get rid of that sin, oh, beloved, that is its own victory. So the blessed is not the sinless person, but the person who yearns to be such. And Christian, one day you will be What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hate their sin. And just to define our terms, when I say sin, I mean doing what we want instead of what God wants. Sin is doing what we want instead of what God wants. But the blessed are those who are saddened by their sin and who turn from it. That's what repentance is, turning from sin to God. We sang it earlier, from death to life. Friends, blessed people, repent. That means if your Christianity never challenges the way you live or the people and things you pursue and surround yourself with, friend, you may have simply made up your own God. Because the real God calls his people to repent, to abstain from evil. That's what holiness is in its most basic sense, cleanliness from impurity. Paul tells Christians to flee evil desires and pursue righteousness. And friends, that pursuit is hard. You don't have to walk with the Lord long to know it's hard to be a Christian, isn't it? I didn't come with a complicated word. I came with a simple one. It's hard to fight temptation. Amen? Amen. Our passions still rage and war within us, James and 1 Peter say. And that's why we can appreciate so much the warning of verse 1 in our psalm. Do you see the progression of verbs? Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. Sit in the seat of scoffers. Isn't that how, isn't that how sin works? You think a little can't hurt. So you walk with it and those who enjoy it. But before long, you're stuck standing in your sin. It's harder to throw off, and suddenly you look up, and you are sitting rooted in sin. I wonder if you're sitting in sin this morning. If you are, humble yourself before the Lord and confess. Real simple. 
confess. The scriptures say that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sisters and brothers, God's given us even more than forgiveness. He's given us other sisters and brothers to help us fight our sin. I was saying earlier, I'm so encouraged by hearing about the recovery ministry here. Praise the Lord. Christian, we're not called to walk, stand, and sit by ourselves. No, we're called to march with the family of God, our local church. If this church is where you regularly attend, then these people are the people you should primarily be walking with in life. Friend, do you love the company of the wicked more than you love the family of God? Are you a blessed person? I speak of love because that's where the psalmist turns in verse 2. Negatively, in verse 1, he talks about what the blessed avoids. But in verse 2, he positively turns to the heart. He says of this blessed person that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so the psalmist makes clear that righteous acts, what we saw in verse 1, are not merely external, but they flow out of the internal, the heart, the heart that delights in the law of the Lord. We see Lord like this in all caps. It's not a typo. It means Yahweh, which was Israel's special name for God. God had a personal relationship with the people of Israel. He chose them not because of anything they did, but simply because he loved them. He kept them and repeatedly delivered them from trouble. Israel usually responded by disobeying, making clear that they didn't deserve such kindness, but because he had every right to, and because he wanted his people to flourish and be happy and be whole and be distinct and to know him and to reflect his character, Yahweh gave his people rules, specifically through his servant Moses. Rules like the Ten Commandments, and other laws that Moses received and kept in the Torah or the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch was the psalmist Bible at the time. It's the law of the Lord that verse 2 speaks of. And the psalmist says, the blessed man wants to obey these divine laws. Uh, he wouldn't want naturally to do this, but because he's known God's favor, the righteous person treasures the words of God, not the words of the wicked. His appetite has been transformed. That's how you can tell someone's been converted. They want things they didn't want before. Things no one naturally wants. I mean, imagine a toddler saying, yes, mom. Yes, dad, give me broccoli. I'd be like, something supernatural is happening here. My, my wife has not called me with the report that our children are suddenly saying this to her. They're in the flesh. Anyway, uh, when we're talking about delighting in God's word, you better believe we're talking about supernatural delight, baby. And those who delight in God's word trust that more blessings come from obeying it. Uh, by God's grace, they understand that a holy life is a life that follows God's instruction and that a holy life leads to a truly happy life. And this seems so backward to us who live in a world that never associates happiness with obedience, nevertheless. The blessed person studies God's law. He meditates on it how often? 
day and night. I'm mentioning those two ends of the spectrum, day and night, is a Hebrew poetic technique that suggests day and night and everything in between. The blessed meditate all the time. In bright seasons of life and in dark seasons of life, this blessed person is joyously devoted to God's word. Are you a blessed person? Let me be crystal clear. The righteous actions we're speaking of, like delighting in God's word, do not make you right with God. No, they flow out of a heart that has already been declared righteous by God, a heart that God knows God's favor is a gracious gift, not a reward for anything any good thing anyone has done. And yet I ask, sisters and brothers, do you delight in reading and obeying your Bible? Or has reading what God says become boring to you, mundane? Let's be real today. No masks. No pretending has reading what God says become boring to you. It so often can in the Christian life. Beloved, if we're honest, Bible reading is hard, isn't it? The Bible is hard to understand sometimes, and I'm a preacher. Many of us have families, doctor's appointments, or just plain old fatigue. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't read my Bible all week, much less once a day. Sometimes encouragements to read God's Word sound like encouragements to blind faith. You know, just be quiet and read the Bible. Sisters and brothers, what should we do when we're discouraged in our Bible reading? We remember that God didn't save us because we read the Bible perfectly, but because of his grace. We remember that we need not expect a feeling of euphoria every time we read the scriptures. We remember that we can't calculate all the things God is working out in our lives when we read his word. I've heard it said that God is doing 10,000 things in your life. You can see maybe three of them. Or think of it like this. You know when you're flying on an airplane, They talk about how, you know, if the oxygen masks drop down, don't panic. Oxygen is flowing even if the mask doesn't inflate. The same is true of our Bible reading. Even if you can't see anything happening, oxygen is flowing. So read the Bible and breathe in the word of life. When we're discouraged in our Bible reading, We ought to keep reading scripture and building our knowledge of God because that's what helps fuel our love for God. And we do so by moving forward one foot of faith in front of the next and continuing the work of reading our Bibles. Oh, beloved brothers and sisters, it takes work to read our Bibles. Joy and delight in God do not come naturally. They require sacrifice commitment, and work. But then again, doesn't every real relationship? Verse 2 shows us that delight in our God requires work. Look back at it. The righteous man who delights in the law of the Lord, he does what? 
He meditates day and night. And that meditation fuels his delight. But I fear meditation is a lost discipline in the Christian life today. A lot of us aren't even familiar with the idea of meditation, or if we are, we think it's reserved for people who sit with their legs folded and do this. But what does it mean to meditate? Beloved, when the world talks about meditation, it usually means emptying your mind. When God talks about meditation, he means filling your mind with his word. The theologian Martin Luther put it like this. He says, to meditate is to think carefully, deeply, diligently, and properly. It means to muse in the heart. So let me give you an example. When I bought my wife's wedding ring, the thing fascinated me. For some absurd length of time, I twirled it in front of my face. I wanted to see every facet, every reflection of life. Does it smell like anything? What's it taste like? Don't worry, I didn't actually lick the ring. But what I'm saying, sisters and brothers, is that God's word is the diamond of the church. Meditate on it. Luther goes on to say that scripture is a stone of offense and a rock of scandal for those who are in a hurry. Oh, friends, we got to abide in the word. What did Jesus say? Abide in me. He is the word of God. See, we, we be abiding in our inboxes, abiding in our phones, abiding in our apps. We got to abide in God's word. Uh, Bible intake is not optional for the Christian. It's basic. And looking out, I'm encouraged by so many of you older saints in the faith who model what years of meditating on scripture can do, continue in that, brothers and sisters. You're a tremendous testimony to the value of God and his word. I'm encouraged, Citizens Church, that you gave your pastor time off so he can spend more time in the Bible and come back refreshed, ready to teach y'all the Bible. As a pastor, let me say thank you for giving him that time. Now, it's true, beloved sisters and brothers, that many of us don't have time to meditate, which is why we must work to make time. It will likely mean sacrificing some part of our schedule. It might mean some creativity. You know, moms who you're at home, it might mean just putting a verse on a little index card above the sink when you're doing dishes. It's something in our house that we do. It might mean listening to a sermon as we drive to work, or just take one verse or whatever it is, you don't have to read thousands of verses in a private prayer closet to meditate. Look at Psalm 1. There are six verses. You could take one verse per day and ask who, what, when, where, why, and how of each one. Who is the blessed? Why is he blessed? And run off with the text. That's all I'm doing today. I'm asking questions of the text and seeing what it says. We can meditate on verses one and two longer, but we got to move on. Verse three describes what this blessed, righteous person is like. Such beautiful imagery here. Oh, the one who delights in God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water. So this person is firmly established. Uh, He's rooted like a tree, one that receives nutrition and hydration. Friends, this is a healthy tree. And, And so it produces fruit. In the Christian life, 
Good fruit is evidence that God is at work in you. In Matthew, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, every good tree will produce fruit. And I think he had in mind this blessed person. Are you blessed? And do you pray that you would be blessed as God means you to be. Someone is a great prayer to pray for yourself, for your kids, for your grandkids, for your fellow church members. But friends, taking God's word that he has breathed and praying it back to him is a wonderful habit to develop. One poet said, prayer is God's breath returning back to him. Pray to love God's word, like the psalmist in 119 who prays, incline my heart to your word and not to selfish gain. And it's there I want to pause, though, and ask if gain is wrong. After all, what about that last line in verse 3 about the blessed person? Look with me. Whatever he does, he prospers. Really, God. How can that be true when so much around us tempts us to believe a different story? Well, beloved, by the world's standards of health and wealth, we might not be prospering. There's a lot of churches that will tell you lies from hell about prosperity and that God will give you health, wealth, and happiness if you just do such and such. But hear me clearly, friends. By the world's standards of health and wealth, we might not be prospering, but by God's standards, we are prospering if our happiness isn't dependent on stuff, but on Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Consider him, brothers and sisters, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. But before we consider Jesus further, I want to move on to verse 4, which brings us to the second section of this psalm. And the question for this section, verses 4 to 6, is this. Am I wicked? Question or point number two. Am I wicked? The scriptures are clear. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But but, but God, by his grace, has counted some as righteous. What of those whom he hasn't. Well, our text implies that the wicked don't have true happiness. They don't submit to God's word out of love for God. They walk in their own counsel, stand stubborn in their own ways, and try to sit on the throne of their own lives and rule them. They don't truly delight in God's law, but sin day and night. They're not planted near streams of water. They wither. The verse 4 explains their state simply by saying, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the psalmist agrarian culture would have naturally understood this farming simile. Before I moved to Alabama, I lived in Washington, D.C., where I grew up, so I'm a city boy. Uh, and this farming talk is kind of like another language, but chaff are the husks and straw that get removed when farmers are threshing wheat. In other words, chaff is the bad part. Uh, the useless part of a harvest. Unlike the firmly rooted tree of verse 3, chaff has no rooting. And that's why when the farmers throw the fresh wheat in the air, the 
breeze drives it away. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, the wicked are driven away from true blessedness because of their evil works. In a strikingly similar passage to Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, another good passage to meditate on, it says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to, watch this, the fruits of his deeds. Notice that fruit can be good, like it was in our first section, or bad, as it's mentioned here. God is the fruit evaluator. And evaluation, judgment, is exactly what we see in verse 5 of Psalm 1. What is that therefore, therefore? It's there to mark the transition to the conclusion of the psalm. It's there to say, because the wicked have no rooting, verse 5, look with me, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the, in the assembly of the righteous. Why, verse 6, for or because Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Sisters and brothers, we will all appear in Yahweh's courtroom, not as those who pronounce judgment, but as those who will be judged. The wicked will not make it through this judgment. They will be cast to that place of eternal unrest, hell. Left to our own, none of us will stand in the congregation of God's people, the righteous, because none of us are righteous. So the question this psalm begs is how do we become righteous in God's sight? How do we become righteous in God's sight? We turn from our sin and trust in the one who was righteous, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who walked among the wicked, stood in the way of sinners and took the mocking of scoffers. And yet though he was tempted as we are, he never gave in to temptations because he delighted in Yahweh's law perfectly. The law is what he quoted when he fended off Satan's temptations in the wilderness. You can read Matthew 4 about that. Beloved, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the most glorious picture of what the blessed man of Psalm 1 looks like. We are not. We should have been on that cross because like Adam and Eve, we took the fruit, but praise be to God that Jesus is the one who climbed the tree. Instead of being like a tree planted by streams of water, he actually hung on that Roman tree as water streamed from his side. Yes, Jesus, the perfect one, withered as the unrighteous cross, or as the, un, as the unrighteous on the cross. He, the righteous, lost everything so that we, the wicked, might prosper. Friends, on the cross, Jesus drank the bitter cup so that we might drink the cup of God's blessing. We, weak little trees, can't even save ourselves with our own fruit, but the fruit of Jesus' tree would prove sufficient to cover the sins of all who trust in him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus would nourish us back to life. And how do we know this? Oh, because three days after he was slain, 
Jesus, Jesus, Jesus came back to life. His resurrection proved that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So now that those who put their faith in Christ and turn away from their sin, those who were once wicked can stand in the judgment with confidence. We can stand fully forgiven of every sin. We can stand in the congregation of the righteous because we are not judged on the basis of our deeds, but on the basis of Jesus's deeds. As Paul says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we, the wicked, might become the righteousness of God. Oh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, won't you turn from your sin and trust in Christ today? God commands you to do as much. Won't you do it? Won't you be freed from and forgiven of your sins, come and get some supernatural delight this morning. And I speak of delight because we all must answer yes to question number two, am I wicked? But praise be to God that we who trust in Christ can answer yes and amen to question number one, am I blessed? Because we know Jesus is our righteousness, amen? This is the good news, sisters and brothers. Will you lean wholly on it? Who are you? Let's pray. God, Father, we've gathered as those who don't stand above your word, but who sit underneath it. Your word has searched us and has tried us and is still searching and is still trying. Father, we pray we would abide in this word, that we would not abide in our phones, that we would not abide in our own thoughts of ourselves, but that we would abide in your word. Father, fill us with your spirit to this end. We give you glory for the Psalms. We thank you, Lord, for not just speaking to us, but for speaking for us. Oh, Lord, put a new song in our mouths. Lord, put, put, put new life into our souls, even today. Restore us, we pray, that we might be like that tree planted by streams of water. Father, we want to be blessed blessed as you mean it. And so we grab your throne of grace and we ask, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we grab this throne and we will not let go until you bless us. So bless us in Christ, we pray. Lord, your word bids us to come to you. Here we are, Lord. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.